This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Warning. This episode contains discussion of sexual and domestic abuse. Listener discretion is advised. The landscape of my childhood was just poverty, abuse, a fundamentalist religion. I mean, I, I can't think of many redeeming qualities of my childhood. If a tough childhood creates character, I have so much character. You don't get to choose your family, and whoever chose my family for me chose the you know the poorest one and with the you know the most extreme religion, completely dysfunctional, and just extreme abuse. Also, my my father was extremely violent and I suffered physical and sexual abuse when I was a child. That's Frady Rice, activist against forced marriage, child marriage, and teenage marriage. Activism tends to spring from moral outrage, and sometimes that moral outrage is deeply personal. Frady's is a story that contains layer after layer of secrecy, isolation, violence, and fundamentalism.
I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. One of the most immediately obvious aspects of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, and where I grew up in Brooklyn, the first thing you notice is the large family sizes. I was from a family of six, and that was kind of a small family, believe it or not. So yes, a lot of siblings and nieces and nephews and cousins and aunts and uncles. Community is really, really important. I grew up really very much cut off from the outside world. I didn't have my own bedroom. I didn't have my own space. I mean, it was always around other people, and those other people were always also ultra-Orthodox Jewish. And people are surprised to learn just how cut off I was from the outside world. You know, I was born in uh, in the 70s, so you know, grew up in the 80s and 90s in Brooklyn, and no television, no radio, no newspapers, no no real contact with anybody who wasn't also ultra orthodox Jewish. So I didn't know the basic things about culture, and it, it was a lot to learn when I left. And people were shocked. You don't know what the Muppets are. You've never. Uh, you don't know who the Beatles are. You don't know that hamburgers are not made out of ham. <laughs> No, I did not know any of that. So how would I know? English was my first language always, which made it a lot easier when I was leaving the community. For those for whom Yiddish is their first language, it's much more difficult. And actually, my, my mother had grown up in a Hasidic family in Williamsburg, and her first language was Yiddish, and my father was, believe it or not, Cuban. Uh, he was born in Havana, and his first language was Spanish, but at home we always spoke English. And I speak very little Yiddish and not a word of Spanish. Did your father, was he also raised in um, an Orthodox Jewish community in Cuba? Yes, absolutely, yes. The, the fundamentalism in my family goes back many, many generations. Where were you in the order of, in the birth order of siblings? I was second to youngest, so I got exactly zero attention, which in a family that abusive and dysfunctional, probably best case scenario. The school that I went to was an ultra-Orthodox Jewish school, Yeshiva of Brooklyn, all-girls school. There was a Yeshiva of Brooklyn for boys, but that one was two blocks away in a separate building. So, yes, completely cut off from boys and men. So, yes, um, everywhere we went, the stores that I shopped in, any business I had to do, any if I was allowed to get a job, which was fairly limited, then it had to be uh, with an Orthodox Jewish boss. When I say very limited access to the outside world, we're talking about when I showed the city bus driver my bus pass. That was like the most contact I had with somebody who wasn't from my same community. What were the mores and customs around the opposite sex? At any event or party or religious gathering, a synagogue, any any time there was there were people coming together, the men and the women were completely separated, either in a separate room, or the women were behind a curtain, a machitza, a, a, you know, a real separation of barrier, and it was very, very, very explicit that this was not separate but equal to the extent that that exists. This is not separate but equal. This is the women are less than. The men are the ones who are partaking in this religious activity or the prayer or whatever party it is, and the women are there as 
observers and bystanders, and they better be silent, they should not be seen, they should not be heard. And to give you a sense of just how explicit the misogyny is in that community, in the prayer book, it shows that every morning men make a blessing. They thank God for not making them a non-Jew, a slave, or a woman. And then for women, when the men are saying, oh God, thank you, Lord, for not making me a woman or a slave or a non-Jew, uh, women make a blessing. Thank you, God, for making me as you willed. It was, it was, you know, <laughs> like, oh boy. And then imagine the message that sends as, as a girl, when I was seeing this every morning in my prayer book and knowing that the men and boys were making this blessing, thanking the Lord for not making them someone like me, which they put in the same category as a slave or a non-Jew, because just gives you a sense of also the, the xenophobia there. Like anyone who's not one of us is is the equivalent of a slave. Just how offensive all of that is. It's so it, there's so much to unpack there. Looking back, I think one of the most infuriating aspects of that is that when when we as girls would ask, well, why? Why are men thanking God for not making them a non-Jewish slave or a woman? What does that mean about me as a girl or a woman? The response was the ultimate in gaslighting. The response was, it's because women are so special. Oh, yeah, I mean, that totally explains it. That's why all the men thank God for not making them a non-Jewish slave or a woman. It's because women are so special. I feel better now. As a child, Though certain elements of the religion felt confusing and extreme to her, Frady doesn't exactly clock the misogyny and xenophobia. Early on, she doesn't clock the abuse that's going on at home either. How could she? It's all she knows. This is the thing about being born into an abusive family, especially when you don't have a TV where you see the fake families that are all happy and sweet. You don't really have a sense that what's happening to you is not normal. There is no real sense of, oh wait, I'm not supposed to be afraid in my own home. I'm not supposed to be physically assaulted in my own home. My mother shouldn't be you know, pushed down the stairs and beaten with a stick. Like this shouldn't be happening. There's very little sense of that when you're a child born into it. So that part, I, I really did not uh, question or complain about. And even the misogynistic aspects of the religion, I questioned some of it and got into trouble because one of the rules in that community is the message is, you're a woman, shut the fuck up. You have a vagina, who are you to ask questions? So even the small questions that I asked, I got into trouble for asking. But also I asked them not as... Uh, well, this is all bullshit. I don't want any part of it. It was, you know, I asked them based on this, this premise that obviously this is my religion. This is my life. I'm in it. This is the right way. This is what God wants. There is a God. I believe that back then as well. And, um, you know, I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to rebel. None of that. That didn't even occur to me. Though leaving her religion or her home never occurs to Frady at this time. Her mom is told to leave her marriage. Divorce is almost unheard of in the community, but the rabbis know how violent her father is. The rabbis tell Freddy's mom, listen, he's going to kill you. He's going to kill the kids. You have to get out. Even then, when she left, because of the deeply misogynistic laws in that religion, only a man is allowed to grant a get, a Jewish divorce. A woman doesn't have that right. 
She can ask for a divorce, but he can just say no. And then what happens to her is she just becomes what's known in that community as an aguna, a chained woman, a woman who is literally chained to a dead marriage and forever a second-class citizen. I think second-class is, is too generous. I mean, we're talking about someone who is just further abused by the entire community, really, really looked down upon. Being single in that community is already considered shameful, but being an aguna, everybody will absolutely blame the victim in that situation and just treat an aguna like just complete dirt, as if it's somehow her fault. And that's exactly what happened to my mother for seven years. Obviously, this violent, abusive man was not going to just willingly let her out of this abusive, violent marriage. And I saw the way the community treated her, and I heard her cry herself to sleep at night. I used to, as a child, remember hearing her sobbing when she thought that we couldn't hear her. And I questioned that. I question that. What, why? How does it make sense? How does it make sense that a woman can't grant again? And then I remember asking also, why can't a woman say Kaddish? That's the prayer for the dead. There was no one in my life that had died that I wanted to say Kaddish for, but it just it just didn't make sense to me. And I would ask these questions, and the response was, you know, shut the fuck up and sit the fuck down. And by the way, why aren't you cooking and cleaning? You're a woman or a girl. So there was no answer. Frady is four when her mother takes her and her siblings away from her father. They flee with the clothing on their backs, first to Los Angeles, and then back to Brooklyn to live with Frady's grandparents. This is where she spends the rest of her childhood. She's 11 when her father finally gives her mother a get, a Jewish divorce. Why did he finally give her a get? My understanding is that someone convinced him, some clever person convinced him that if he gave my mother a get, he would show her what a nice person he was and she would come back to him. So you're like 11 or 12 years old when your mother is no longer an aguna, right? Right. So, but then, yay, she's not an aguna, but now she's a divorcee, which is almost as bad in that community. Not as bad. I mean, aguna is, is a whole new level uh, or a, a really low level. But uh, even as a divorced woman, the the abuse that she got, the treatment that she got was absolutely horrifying. So were you sort of at that point watching your older siblings start to get married, start to have families? I mean, if you're if you're the second to the youngest um, when you were a teenager, was that starting to happen around you? Yes. When I was 12, my oldest sister got engaged. She was 19. So she was really old. It was time for her to marry. And by the way, very, very difficult for my mother to arrange all of our marriages because we are now the children of divorce. And that's just so looked down upon in that community. So not only was my mother punished for being first an aguna and then a divorcee, but then we were all punished. I mean, I had girls in my class at Yeshiva of Brooklyn whose parents would not let them talk to me. They said, well, you can't talk to Freely. Her parents are divorced. It was that extreme. And the other thing that didn't occur to me at the time, and looking back at this, this is what really, really gets to me, is my mother's marriage was arranged or forced, whatever you want to call it. I call it forced because there's no there's no real opportunity for either party to consent to these marriages. So her parents forced her into this marriage to a stranger, and it turned out to be, I mean, such a horrifying, terrible uh, experience for her. She, I mean, she was... 
abused every single day for the 14 years that she lived with my father. He tortured her. And yet, less than a year after she finally got her religious divorce and got out of that, she was already forcing all of her children into marriages to strangers. It, I don't think it ever occurred to her that the system doesn't make sense. This is a problematic system. You cannot just marry people off without their consent to strangers and then have it turn out well. So I, yes, I went from watching her get her get and then uh, to my sister being married off to a stranger. And then as far as I know, my oldest sister, uh, her marriage was not, as far as I know, an unhappy marriage, although I wouldn't necessarily know that. But she got pregnant right away, which is what's supposed to happen in that community. And her oldest son was born with really profound uh, disabilities, very, very, very sick and spent most of his life in a hospital and in a home. He couldn't see, he couldn't walk, he couldn't talk, and he, um, and he died when he was 18. So I was... 12 or 13 when he was born. Yessi, this was my first nephew. And I just, I just fell in love with Yessi. I still remember the first time I saw him in the hospital, hooked up to all kinds of machines. He had his first surgery as soon as he was born. He had hydrocephalus. And, and back then the treatments for that were really limited. And I just fell in love with him. This is what I was witnessing. My sister was 20 years old and she has uh, a son with profound disabilities that she now has to care for when she's, she's basically a child herself. And then she has to keep having children because that's what's required in that community. So I mean, she, she continued having children and then trying to, to juggle all of that when she herself had not even had a chance to grow up. I mean, it's just so heartbreaking. In the bridal classes that are mandatory for all engaged women in the community, women are taught that you are required to have unprotected sex with your spouse on a monthly basis, and it's time for when you're ovulating. So it's forced sex, forced unprotected sex, which leads to forced parenthood. Frady watches her sister go through this and is aware that before long, she'll be paired off with someone too. I mean, I was just waiting to be married off. And I had no hopes and dreams for the future other than I want to be a wife and a mother because that's all I was taught. There's a term for a, a girl once she reaches high school in, in the Orthodox Jewish community, they call her a kalamatel. It's just a, a bridal girl. It's just a girl waiting to become a bride. That's all really I was. I was required to sign two different forms, uh, promising that I wouldn't take driver's ed and promising that I wouldn't take SATs. It's very, very, very carefully orchestrated that as a girl, I was completely financially dependent on my, what would have been parents. My father was out of the picture by then. So I was completely financially dependent on my mother, had to live in her home, not allowed to move out on my own. The only way I could move out was when I got married so that I was just never allowed to become independent. And there's also lack of education. I wasn't allowed to get a real education at Yeshiva of Brooklyn. And we learned how to cook and sew. And I was not allowed to go to college. So all of this really just conspires against you. We'll be right back. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. 
Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. So when Frady is a teenager, the official matchmaking process kicks off. She's seen this play out for her older siblings, and now it's her time to be forced into a relationship with a stranger, a partner chose by someone else, the matchmaker. There is no courtship. It's just a match. I was one of those couples, those hilariously awkward couples sitting five feet away from each other in the lounge of a hotel drinking soda and asking, so how many children do you want to have? What's your favorite soda? Okay, let's get married. Well, it's not even let's get married because that's decided by the matchmaker. I mean, that whole exercise I shouldn't laugh because there is really nothing funny about forcing strangers into marriage. 
when they've never been allowed to be alone together. So they have to be in that public place, never allowed to have any physical contact. And they have a matchmaker arranging the whole thing. And by the time you get to go on, on one of those, they call that a date. <laughs> I would really, really, I think that's a bit of a stretch to call that kind of meeting a date. But uh, by the time you get to go on this so-called date, both families have all, and the matchmaker have already decided this match is happening. So it's really, it's not, do you want to marry him? It's, you're going to marry him, right? And to say no to that is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And especially, there's some socioeconomic element to this. So if my parents had not been divorced, if I had a father who was a famous rabbi or was very wealthy, then I probably would have felt comfortable saying no to to a few matches so you know, you know the first guy that, that the matchmaker matches me with perhaps i could have said no i don't i don't like his nose or i don't like you know he likes sprite and i like coca-cola so obviously we're not compatible uh you know perhaps but because i was from such a poor family and my parents were divorced i knew if i said no there was probably not going to be another match and the other thing is there's no real basis to say no. I mean, you know, I joke about how oh, he likes Sprite and I like Coca-Cola. I mean, really, other than that, how much can you possibly get to know somebody sitting in that lounge five feet apart from each other, you know, talking about how many children do you want to have and what's your favorite soda? There's very little that you can learn. I remember talking to this one woman who said she also grew up in a fundamentalist Hasidic community that she came from and and she told her mother after this she actually got to meet this guy for a half hour and that by then like the wine had been pouring the cookies had been put out i mean both families were there they were just waiting for her to say yes and after the half hour meeting she went back into the kitchen and from the living room she told her mother i just i just don't like him and her mother said how could you not like him you don't even know him and not understanding the irony of what she was saying you can marry this guy, but you can't not like him. You have no basis not to like him. You've met him for half hour. How could you not like him? And there's a lot, of, I had a lot of that feeling as well. How can I say no? My mother has said this is the right guy for me. His family has said this is the right guy for me. The matchmaker, I always compare the matchmakers to used car salespeople. They get paid only if there's an engagement. So they go hard. I mean, this they're, they're going to make sure that this match happens. In my case, it was my mother's first cousin, and she's telling me this is the right guy for you. And it, it's very much a sense of I've never dated before. I don't know. I don't know anything. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a 19-year-old clueless virgin. I'm gonna turn 20 this year, and then you don't want to turn 20 and still be single in that community. That's basically a death sentence. When I saw him, he, I remember him standing there on the porch, and my initial instinct was, oh, God, this is not at all what the matchmaker had promised, had told me. He was unkempt. His suit was, like, a little disheveled. I, I'm very into clothing. Like, I, I always like to dress well. I always, I always look really put together. And he was just kind of a mess, and he was pretty significantly overweight and just just not at all what the matchmaker had said to me. And I remember thinking, oh, God, this was not what I would have wanted. But then it's always so drummed into you. I had been taught for years and years, physical attraction, that's something the Gayim, the, the non-Jews, the other, that's what they worry about. That's not something that we care about. Sexual attraction, that's not a thing. Physical attraction, physical appearance, that means nothing. Absolutely nothing to do with anything. And by the way, it wasn't 
this is how you make a decision. Don't worry about physical appearance. Instead, look at X, Y, and Z. There was no look at X, Y, and Z. No one ever had a conversation with me about, all right, you're going to get to meet this guy at the lounge of the hotel. Here's what you should ask him. Here's what you should look at. Here's what you should think about. I had no idea. And, and I, it didn't even occur to me to ask. And it didn't occur to anyone around me to tell me that. I was just... Basically, it was, you know, checking the, the boxes on the page. Okay, did the matchmaker come forward? Yes. Did his family say yes? Check. Did her family say yes? Check. Did they meet three times in the hotel lobby and talk about soda preferences? Check. All right, then they can get engaged. I mean, it was just, really, it was just ridiculous. And in fact, the average number of these fake dates in the community is seven, by the way. And I can't remember exactly how many dates we had, but it was over a period of, of something like eight weeks. And on two of these so-called dates, this guy got into a physical fight with strangers on the street. There was one time that he didn't like the way a guy looked at me and they got into a, a physical alter- altercation. And then there was another time that there was some kind of you know, driving incident. He was a very aggressive driver and he got into a, a physical fight with, with another driver. And... That was such a huge red flag. I mean, the fact that he turned out to be violent and abusive, anyone who would have seen that, who had any, you know, was thinking about this rationally at all, would have said, God, that's a red flag. This is somebody who has violent tendencies. But that did not occur to me. And this didn't occur to anyone around me to ask about that. Nobody said, well, if he physically assaults strangers on the street while you're walking with him, that's a guy who probably has violent tendencies and you need to, you know, proceed with caution. No. To me, in my 19-year-old brain, it was, oh, wow, he's, you know, he really would protect me. This is a guy who's really, really going to protect me. This is, this is fantastic. Tell me about how you felt walking down the aisle. I was so happy, and it's embarrassing to admit this, and it hurts me to say this. I wish I could say, God, I was begging for it not to happen, and I walked down the aisle feeling like this is so unfair. I always say I walk down the aisle to my execution wearing a big smile and the world's ugliest gown. I wish I had known better, but I let myself get caught up in all in all of it. You know, and here's the thing. There you say no to a match, there are all kinds of serious repercussions. Bad things will happen. You say yes, you get a party. You get to to be the center of attention. I was the second to youngest of six and a girl in in a fundamentalist, religious, really poor family. I had never had a birthday party. Nobody ever made me the center of attention. I mean, in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, girls don't even have a bat mitzvah. Boys have a bar mitzvah, but a girl doesn't have a bat mitzvah. All of a sudden, you get engaged, center of attention, big parties. You know, people will buy you all kinds of gifts and a whole new wardrobe and a set of multiple sets of pots and pans and dishes. And then also, I didn't feel safe at home. I was unsafe at home. My brother was very abusive. I did not feel safe at home. And I get to move out. I get I get to get out of this abusive home. I get to go someplace where I imagined in my head I would be safe. Finally, for the first time in my life, I'd be away from my abusive father and away from my abusive brothers. I get to just live in safety with all these new pots and pans at 19, I can't imagine, you know, getting a better deal. So yeah, I walk down the aisle, skip in. I'm like, this is fantastic. Way to go, Frady. 
Frady and her new husband begin their life together. They move into a little basement apartment on Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn, a wide, busy boulevard lined with synagogues, yeshivas, and Jewish businesses. So one of the, you know, beautiful homes on Ocean Parkway in the dinky basement with like one little window, basically a prison, which I guess is fitting. So living in this little tiny apartment and... The first thing that became very, very clear right away was that my then-husband and I were just not compatible. I mean, it was very clear that we had nothing at all in common and that having a conversation was going to be a challenge with this man because the way we approached life was so different. So, for example, he would make Helen Keller jokes where he mocked people who were blind or people who had physical disabilities. I remember I was talking about my nephew, Yessi, who I loved more than anyone in the world who was blind and he was in a wheelchair and every time my husband made a joke about Helen Keller I would start to cry you know I would beg him please don't make jokes about that it really hurts me I feel like you're really offending Yessi why is it his fault that he's blind and the more I cry the funnier he found it seven days after our wedding he woke up late one morning and he was late for an appointment and he was furious oh my god i woke up late he wasn't even angry at me he was angry at himself and flew into a violent rage the likes of which i um well i can't say had never seen because obviously there were a lot of violent rages in my childhood home but was not what i was expecting from my marriage but also he was cursing in a way that i had never heard before and i was terrified so you know he was talking about a big guy he was six feet tall and he's 240 pounds jumping up and down and screaming at the top of his lungs and I'm just terrified I was like what is happening I don't know what to do like he's a stranger just completely lost his shit screaming and yelling so I was cowering in a corner and then in his like final act of rage he punched his fist through the wall really hard he left a big hole in the wall and then ran out to whatever appointment he was late for and that was when I said oh my god oh my god and I'll 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 never forget just standing there looking at that hole in the wall shaking I thought I was going to be safe here I thought I was going to be safe this was supposed to be different what just happened what this is what he acts like when he wakes up late and, you know, on Ocean Parkway, there's um, there's a park, a little playground across the street. And so I remember after he left, I walked across the street to this playground and sat on a swing just crying, Christ, just swinging for hours and crying, oh my God, what is going to happen to me? Am I, am I going to end up like my mother? Did you tell anyone? Well, at first I didn't. It was like two or three days after that. Um, he threatened to kill me for the first time. And that's something that became the norm in our marriage. He would he would threaten to kill me and he would get very graphic with the detail. He would describe to me how he was going to kill me. And he would do this while he was screaming in a rage and breaking things and throwing things. And so even though he didn't have his hands on me, he would describe to me like, oh, I'm going to, you know, like one time he was going to put his fingers around my neck and he was going to squeeze really hard and he was going to watch me as I, you know, struggled to breathe. And then he was going to watch me take my last breath. I mean, he described this whole thing. And there was another time he was going to go to the kitchen and he was going to get a knife. And then he described what he's going to do with the knife. And, you know, it was 
beyond terrifying. It was very believable that he was going to do these things to me because A, why would he describe it in such graphic detail if he didn't actually plan to do it? And B, he was doing it at the same time that he was smashing and breaking things. So he was clearly capable of violence. But he didn't beat me up. So he would throw things at me. He would shove me. Or he loved to do this thing where he was a really wild driver. And so whenever whenever we were going anywhere, obviously he would drive. He wouldn't let me drive. And he would do this thing where he would speed up to 100 miles an hour and then jam on the brake to send me flying, to send me flying into the windshield. Within a couple of weeks, I started saying, this is a problem. I went to my mother for help with this. I went to his father. Um, I made an appointment with a rabbi, like, you know, our rabbi and one of the big rabbis in the community to try to get help. And with everyone, it was, well, did he hit you? And I said, no, he, he didn't hit me, but he's telling me he's going to kill me. Well, if he didn't hit you, why are you complaining? And especially with my mother, like, I remember thinking, how could I even complain about this to my mother? I mean, my mother had broken bones. She had black and blue marks. I'm going to complain that this guy, you know, punched his fist through the wall. It didn't even seem fair. So they all, you know, they all just try to convince me that the problem was me, that I was being, my standards were too high, that I was being unreasonable, that he was really young. He's 22 years old. He just needs time to grow up. And, and you know, you have to be good to him. You can't upset him. And you really can't complain when he's not even hitting you. You saw what your mother went through. You're going to complain that the guy said, I'm going to kill you. Did he kill you? No. So why are you complaining? So I just lived in fear every day that he was going to kill me. And then when I had kids, I lived in fear that he was going to kill them too. And he would say that. He'd say, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to kill them. And then I'm going to kill myself. That was his plan. How far into your, into your marriage were your daughters born? 11 months. That's what happens when you are forced to have unprotected sex. Got pregnant two months after my wedding. Gave birth nine months later after that. So... Um, so 11 months for my first one. And then my next one was four years later. I had never heard the term reproductive rights. I had never, you know, didn't have any sense of consenting to sex or anything like that. All I knew was my marriage was a disaster. My husband was a violent, just awful, awful. The way he treated me was absolutely unspeakably awful. And my first pregnancy was a nightmare. I mean, I was, the morning sickness I had all day, every day, the entire nine months. I kept losing weight. I couldn't keep any food down. I was hospitalized for dehydration. At a certain point, I was having trouble with my kidney. And there was urologists who told me that we're going to have to uh, deliver the baby early and remove my kidney. I mean, it was like really a, an awful pregnancy. And... I just knew I didn't want to do that again. And I knew that I wasn't happy in my marriage, even though I was stuck in it. And I went to um, my gynecologist and I said, you need to give me birth control. And I, I give her credit and she's ultra-Orthodox Jewish. And by the way, she's the same gynecologist who, when I was a bride, performed a virginity exam on me to confirm that my hymen was intact and I was a so-called virgin. So I, I am in hindsight surprised that she did this, but she gave me birth control. And then my husband lost it. He said, how dare you? And he took, us, he took me to the rabbi who said, you're not allowed to use birth control. And I looked at the rabbi in the eye and I said, it is my body, not yours. 
And he said, you know what? If you feel like you need a break, you can use birth control for one year, but then you have to stop. And I said, what part of my body do you not understand? I am not doing this for one year. I am never having another child. And the rabbi told my husband, don't worry, after a year, she'll stop. And after a year, I, I didn't stop until I finally caved into the pressure and had a baby four years later. And I was lucky that I had only two. And then all of this just, it's just chains getting tighter and tighter and tighter around you. And for me, it started really feeling like it was tightening around my neck and I was going to die. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. 
Despite the vice that grips her, Frady has an escape plan. She's going to go to college, though she's not supposed to. She's going to find a way out for herself and her daughters. It was a sense of survival. It was the realization after a particularly traumatic incident where my family and my community just were not coming through for me. I finally realized I need to get out on my own. If I stay, this man is going to kill me and he's going to kill my two daughters. He made that very clear. When you feel that your life is in danger, you become capable of doing things you never thought you could. And that's what it was for me. It was it was a sense of survival. It was a sense of this is the only way I'm going to get out of here alive. So I have to get out on my own. And the only way I can do that is if I have an education and some way to support myself financially. Frady has not been allowed to have a job or a bank account or a credit card. So in order to gain this financial independence, an education would be a must. Before pursuing the education on her own, though, she asks her family, her mother, who surely would understand what she's going through, right? For help. Originally, I I did not think I would go to college or or get out on my own. After years and years of just suffering in this abusive marriage when I was 27, it was the time that my mother happened to come over to the house after a really violent um, outburst from my then-husband where he had kicked in the front door. We had a deadbolt lock. And um, and he had, you know, left in a rage, and I locked the door behind him, and he came back and wanted to get back in, and he's screaming, I said, I'm not going to let you back in until you calm down, and he kicked in the front door. And, um, and she came over in the aftermath of that, so she saw the physical signs of it, and she saw me sitting there crying, and the kids were there crying, and, and that was when I finally said to her, I said, you know, I'm really, I'm scared for my life, I'm afraid for my kids' lives. I don't know what my next step is, but can I just move in with you temporarily just, you know, just so that I figure out where I go from here and, and just so that I can be safe. And her, her answer was she turned around and walked out of the room without saying anything. And, um, and I remember my, my older daughter, who was seven at the time, she was in the room and she heard this and she said to me, why didn't Bubby answer you? And I told her that was her answer. It's incredibly hurtful to, you know, this this memory is so painful when I think about it and and how she never forgave her parents for marrying her off to an abusive man. And then she turned her back on me when I asked her for help. And and I think about, you know, all the reasons that possibly she did that. And maybe it was because of guilt or because she just, you know, the trauma, it triggered, it was triggering for her. I don't know what it was, but at the end of the day, she did me such a favor. If I had moved in with her, I would have just continued the cycle and I would have become an aguna and I would have, uh, you know, just remained a victim my whole life. And instead, she, for better or worse, forced me to take matters into my own hands and to leave on my own terms to get my college degree, to save up cash and to leave and get out and leave not only my abusive marriage, but leave this whole misogynistic, abusive community and really create a much happier, well, I can't even say much happier. There was nothing happy about that life. So create finally a happy 
safe and free life for myself and my daughters. During this time, Frady also seeks therapy. In fact, it's the therapist that helps her devise and pursue her escape. The therapist she seeks is outside the ultra-Orthodox community, a radical and, as it turns out, essential move on Frady's part. How did you figure out who to go talk to? I had a friend who, I didn't tell her what was going on, that I was afraid or, you know, that my marriage was abusive. And apparently I didn't have to because one day she said to me, you know, I have the name of a therapist that um, that I've been seeing. Nobody knows. It's, you know, it was, she had to keep it a secret also. And she just slipped me a paper and she said, it's just a name and a number. Um, you know, she didn't ask questions. She didn't say why she gave me the paper. She just clearly saw that something was wrong. And she said, you know, this is just in case you, in case you want to talk to somebody, here's a name. And so I reached out. It was really hard to go because, you know, if I got caught, the repercussions would have been great. So I couldn't like write it down in my calendar. I had to pay cash because I couldn't write out a check or you know, have any kind of paper trail. I mean, and then I had to have a cover story for where I was going during that time. So I actually went only twice. But this therapist was the first person who explained to me what domestic violence was. I mean, imagine this. I had grown up in that really abusive, violent household. And I had been married to this abusive guy for, for at that point, eight years. And I had no idea what domestic violence was. And she explained it to me. And then she was also the first person who said, it doesn't matter if he's never slapped you across the face or broken your bone. That is domestic violence. She went over like what domestic violence looks like and the power and control wheel and the cycle of violence. And it was, it was such an eye opening experience. I mean, it was literally life altering. I always, it was a social worker and I always tell social workers, I mean, you have no idea the power you have. This woman saved my life. She also explained that I had legal rights and that there's something called a restraining order. You can get a restraining order against an abusive husband. The police will remove him from your house and then he's not allowed to come near you so he cannot abuse you or threaten you with stalking you anymore. Now I had this new knowledge that this was that this was an option. And it was it was the, my family and community's reaction to the restraining order that actually ended up leading to my five-year plan to escape because you know the police gave me the res, this uh, temporary restraining order, served it on my then husband, removed him from the house, and then immediately I started getting phone calls from everyone I knew, not only my family, but my friends and my neighbors and rabbis just all saying what the hell is wrong with you? Are you crazy? Who does this? You went to the police? You got a restraining order? Are you out of your mind? Masira, I had always been taught, Masira, turning over your fellow Jew to the to the police, that's literally punishable by death. And I had committed that sin. And then the rabbis sent an attorney to my house, an Orthodox Jewish male attorney showed up at my house. He drove with me to family court in Toms River, New Jersey, and, you know, went with me in front of the judge. He had me tell the judge that I wanted to drop the restraining order. And it was, it was in that surreal moment when the judge asked me whether I was doing this of my own free will. 
And I was looking at him and looking at my attorney and thinking, how can I possibly explain to the judge what's happening here? He looks at me, he, th he, see he thinks this is my attorney standing next to me, he thinks I retained this guy, he thinks I'm here willingly. How can I possibly explain what's going on? I have not a single friend uh, or, or sibling or relative, anyone in the world who is on my side who will back me up here. I don't know what to do. So I lied to the judge and I said, yes, your honor, you know, in answer to his question about whether I was dropping the restraining order willingly. And then I went home and I said, I need to get out and I need to do it on my own because these people are going to let me die here. They'll let this guy, my husband, kill me before they will help me. And the hell with this. I'm just going to get out on my own. I'll get a college degree. I'll save up money. I'll get out on my own. And that's what you did. And that's what I did. So without telling anybody, I secretly applied to Rutgers and became the first person in my family to go to college, man or woman, by the way. And, um, and I started saving up cash in the only place in the house that my abusive then-husband wouldn't look, because he would look through all my personal belongings to make sure that I didn't have anything that I was hiding from him and to show me that I belonged to him and everything I owned belonged to him. He would search in front of me. He would go through the pockets of my skirts hanging in the closet and he would you know, go through all my personal belongings. So I found the one place in the house I knew he wouldn't look, a box of whole grain total in the pantry closet. And I would put cash in there and I started going to college and, and everybody in my family freaked out. How dare you go to college? What is this about? And try to talk me out of it. And I, especially my then husband was furious. And I said, nothing, absolutely nothing that you can do to stop me from going to Rutgers. But, you know, good luck trying. I started to feel much stronger. I said, you know, I'm, I have this great plan. I'm going to get out. I'm saving up cash. I'm getting my college degree, which felt really great. I really, I was a great student. I really, really loved my time at Rutgers. It would seem that you were also being exposed to other people outside of this insular community, like really for the first time. Oh, absolutely. That was also exhilarating, really, just making friends for the first time in my life. That was the first time in my life I made friends with people who were not also ultra-Orthodox Jewish. Here I made friends with this Palestinian Muslim woman who had almost the exact same life story that I did, except I used to like to say her story started in Ramallah and mine started in Borough Park, but, um, but she also had been forced to marry at 19, also had two kids the same ages as my kids. But yeah, that was that was part of the just the enormity of the experience of going to Rutgers, and it was really what made part of what made me feel ready to take my next rebellious step. Which is, while I was still a student there, I stopped wearing the head covering that is required of Orthodox Jewish women, and that was when my family—they were already upset that I was a college student. I mean, how embarrassing is that? But. You know, the neighbors don't necessarily have to know. You can kind of try to keep that quiet. But for an Orthodox Jewish woman to walk outside the house, a married woman without a head covering, it's like walking around naked. That's how much of a statement it makes. They couldn't ignore that. They could not accept that. It, they saw that as just too much of a slap in their face and too much of an affront and the, the flack that they would you know, get from the community, just too much for them to bear. So that was when they shunned me. They, cut off all contact and I have one sister who was the only one I could reach she you know briefly kept in touch with me at first I've since lost contact with her as well but she kept in touch briefly at first and told me that the rest of my family was planning to sit shiva for me go through the the Jewish morning ritual for me as if I had literally died 
And this is because I walked outside of the house with my natural hair on my head. Despite being ostracized by her family, Frady perseveres at Rutgers. Not only does she graduate, but at the graduation ceremony, she's the commencement speaker, an extraordinary accomplishment for someone who had signed a piece of paper promising not to take the SATs. Once I graduated, by then my family had already shunned me, so you can't kill somebody twice. That uh, probably was their mistake. So at that point, I was really able to do whatever I wanted. So I was able to change the locks, file for divorce. And my original plan had been to leave my abusive marriage. But at that point, I said, ha, my family declared me dead because I stopped wearing a head covering. This is nuts. Once I started, you know, going to college and learning things and making other friends and started thinking about life in an adult way, which I never got a chance to do before I was married because I was married as a teen, it just really, really wasn't comfortable for me at all. I said, I don't belong in this whole religion. This is not me. So not only was I able, thanks to my family shunning me, not only was I able to get out of my abusive marriage, but I was able to just leave the entire religion because, you know, normally that would be a scary thing to do because your family might shun you, you might lose your whole family. Well, guess what? I had already lost my whole family. To me, the the religion felt so oppressive. There was a God, and I believed in him back then. I mean, I'm an atheist now, but back then I very, very strongly believed that there was a God, but he was not a God of joy or love. He was a God who was there to punish you. He was was a God who was like my father. He was like my brothers. He was like my ex-husband. He was an angry, abusive God. And he was watching you every second of the day, just waiting for you to slip up. And by the way, there are so many ways to slip up. Biting your lip on Saturday is slipping up. There are so many rules and so many ways to mess up. And every time you mess up, you're going to get punished. And now you ripped the toilet paper on Saturday. And wow, I saw when you washed your hands, you were supposed to do it twice on the right and twice on the left. But you missed the second time. It was only twice on the right. And one of the half times on the left, God is watching. In place of religion, Frady continues to focus on her education and her career. She's carving her own path, freed from the peril of her marriage and thrust into a professional landscape so refreshingly and restoratively far from where she started. So I I was at first, I got my degree in journalism and loved, really loved journalism. And I was an investigative reporter. And then because journalism was a really tough time for journalism at the time, everybody was getting laid off. In an attempt to avoid getting laid off, I became a private investigator, worked for the investigations firm Kroll, which at the time was the world's largest investigations firm. And then I became financially independent enough while I was there to buy a small house for myself and my two daughters. It was a little, a little Cape Cod, which I, of course, named the Palais de Triomphe because it was just such a triumphant moment for me to be able to, to make it far enough out of my traumatic situation to actually buy a house for myself. And I imagine that I am the first woman in the history of my entire family ever to buy her own home. And I was at the closing for the house. And, and if you've ever been at a closing, you know how boring it is. 
It's just signing your name again and again and again until your hand cramps up. And even the seller of the house wasn't there because they had already moved out of state. So I was just in a room with a couple of lawyers and just signing my name again and again. And I kept trying to explain to them what a big moment this was. I said, you understand what a big deal this is that I'm buying a house. I was, you know, trying to explain. I had been forced into a marriage to this abusive guy and trapped. And then my whole family shunned me and I managed to get out and they did not care at all. And so it was at this, it was this anticlimactic moment where I'm signing my name again and again to buy the Calais de Triomphe, where I said, you know, I need to do something to celebrate this moment. And there was also this guilt. It was like a survivor's guilt almost, where how did I get out? And there are so many people I know, I mean, in my former community and in so many other communities who are so trapped in the situation that I got out of. So it was at the closing where I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a nonprofit. I'm going to help those other people. And this is just what Frady does. She helps people. She creates a company called Unchained at Last, the only organization in the United States dedicated to ending forced and child marriage through direct services and advocacy. When I founded Unchained at Last, I was working full-time. I was a single mom, working full-time, commuting from New Jersey into Manhattan, you know, very little free time. But I said, you know, this is just going to be a couple hours a week on the side. I was, there was no budget. Any expense would just come right out of my pocket. At first I thought it was focused specifically on direct services. I wrote up a business plan. I'm just going to help five women the first year, 10 women the second year, just, you know, provide some support and try to get them free legal representation, just like start begging attorneys to help to represent them for free while they're getting divorced. And that was basically the plan. And at the time, by the way, Unchained at Last was the only organization in the entire world with this mission of helping people in the U.S. escape forced marriages. And, And it still is the only one with that mission. By the end of the first year, we had 30 clients. From my original plan of five, we were at 30. This was already a second full-time job, just unpaid. And I realized we're onto something here. Like this, this, this is something bigger. This is not help five women on budget of zero with a staff of zero. Like this is an actual thing. There are a lot of people out there who need help. We were not marketing in any way. That was all word of mouth. 30 people reaching out to us for help. And uh, so it's just continued to grow from there. Remember Frady's Muslim-Palestinian friend from college who was also a survivor of a forced marriage? Well, that friend becomes the first president of the board of directors of Unchained at Last. Together, with other dedicated members of the organization, they strive to help women everywhere break free from their toxic and unsafe arrangements. So from the beginning, I knew that, yes, this is happening in my former community, but I knew it was not limited to that. So my, I was determined from the start to make this, uh, you know, from any community, culture, religion, any background, if you are in or escaping a forced marriage, reach out to us and we will try to help you. You know, at first, most of our clients were from the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. And now, ultra-Orthodox is you know, a small percentage of the overall clients that we help, actually. So, because we've helped people from almost any religion you can think of. I mean, we've helped people from religions where I had to Google, but I had never even heard of it. And from secular backgrounds. I mean, this is, of course, not only a religious issue. So 
as the years went on. So first of all, our staff and budget started growing. It became very clear we can't just do this on the on the kindness of volunteers. And so after four years, we had enough funding that I was able to to take a salary so that I could leave my other job. And now we're actually seven of us. We're a team of seven. And we uh, have an actual office, so we don't have to work out of my dining room anymore. Um, and and we have a, a budget now of over 700,000, where it was, you know, from a budget of zero. And then the other big thing that has changed is where at first we thought this was all going to be direct services. What we realized within the first few years was that in addition to the forced marriage problem we have in the United States, there is a significant child marriage problem. And because more and more girls under age 18 were reaching out to us asking for the same help, and, and we operate nationally, so these are girls from across the U.S. just calling and asking for the same help that we give adults, and we realize, oh crap, there's nothing we can do for them. If we help them leave home, we could be charged criminally. We get them to a domestic violence shelter, the shelters turn them away. They can't bring a legal action in their own name. If In many states, you could be forced into marriage before 18 without, without any input from you. Your parents sign a form or a judge you know, stamps the page and you're forced into this marriage and you can't even freaking file for divorce until you're 18 because you can't bring a legal action in your own name. There's almost nothing we can do for these girls when they reach out to us. So in 2015, even though we're, we were a tiny team at the time, there were, I think, two or three of us on a tiny budget working out of a little office in New Jersey in an undisclosed location because we get all kinds of obnoxious threats. So for security reasons, we have a, a you know a, a office in a secret location. And we said, you know what? In our spare time, we're going to take on this little project. We're going to end child marriage in the United States. At the time, it was legal in all 50 U.S. states. Marriage before 18 was legal in all 50 states, even though it's recognized as human rights abuse. And even though minors typically can't file for divorce and they can't get into a domestic violence shelter, it's it, just an absurd an evil legal construct we have here. Minors can be forced into marriage before they have a legal right to get out of it. And in um, since 2015, well, it took us until 2018 to convince the first U.S. state to end child marriage. And uh, since then, we have convinced six U.S. states. We have helped to end child marriage. We've passed legislation and we have only 44 states to go. The work Frady has done with Unchained at Last has saved countless lives, hers included. Working with others who have suffered similar circumstances has become her vocation. It's been enormously healing, too. I use that word healing all the time. I I actually use healing and empowering to be able to take my own trauma and instead of trying to forget it or get past it, instead using it as a way to help others that is truly healing and empowering. And what I what I get out of Unchained is so much bigger than what I put into it. As hard as this work is, that type of healing, I mean, I don't know any other way I could have been, I could have gotten that. And it's tough, it, you know, it, many days, just the sadness, the stories that, that we get to the survivors that I interact with who, who share some of the worst of humanity. I mean, the most horrific, unspeakable things that that people do to each other. And in this case, it's almost always parents doing it to their own children. It's so overwhelmingly sad. 
and it can turn depressing. It can it can be really tough and triggering for me since this is so close to my own, the trauma that I myself have have overcome. But it's like also so healing and empowering. And 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 every time someone says to me, you know, I see you did it. You got out of it and you rebuilt your life. You give me hope. You give me inspiration. You make you prove to me that I can do it too. What more can I ask? Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor, and Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is one 888 Secret Zero. That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, check out my memoir, Inheritance. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with with Zumo Play. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring? 
but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com.